0: Hello, welcome to Fiat Lex, a podcast about dictionaries by people who write them. I'm Steve klein And I am Corey Stamper. And today, we are doing something special. It is Mailbag Day! My name is Brack!
1: I'm sorry. Mailbag Day makes me think of Space Ghost. (laughs) Blast him.
0: Well, we'll just dive right in then now that we're at Space Ghost. So um, we have said all along, um, even though we love solitude, we have asked you to write in and give us questions and, and interact with us in some way so that we know that this is not just another waste of 30 minutes of Space and uh, ones and zeros floating out in the internet. And some of you have responded.
1: And we're still able to remain in solitude because all of this is done electronically.
0: Woohoo! Best of both worlds. It is really the best way to interact with people. So we've collected some uh, questions we've gotten off of Twitter and Gmail address, which, for those wondering what it is, it is fiatlexpodcast at gmail.com. Maybe someday we'll splurge on getting an actual, you know, proprietary name, but probably not. We won't. So let's dive in. uh, What's first? What's first? So this is from Twitter. This was a question posted by Ari Melber to the general interwebs, and someone pinged us and said, you should take this on. Here is his question. Most dried fruits are just called what they are. Dried cherries, dried pineapple. Why did raisins and prunes get their own titles? Also, raisins are quite special and more celebrated than a mere dried grape. While prune sounds grosser than just saying dried plum.
1: A nice mix of facts and
0: opinion, <laughs> just like everything else on the internet. All right, so, so here's this is an interesting thing because we expect some sort of consistency and logic in English. Ha. And yeah, this. Ha! I say. <laughs> <laughs> this just proves there is no such thing. So uh, we actually looked this up because though I, again, my superpower did work, I was accurately able to tell you when both the word raisin and prune came into English.
1: She did. I was here. I was amazed. It's
0: 14th century. Yep. Um, But we went ahead and we looked him up because we thought, well, that is an interesting thing. So this is great. Um, Prune is from Middle English comes ultimately from the Latin prunum, which actually means plum. So if you go over to plum, you will see that the prunum means, Latin prunum means plum. We actually get it from Greek pronomnon, which my Greek pronunciation is terrible. I'm very sorry. Um, and that's where pretty much where that ends. So prune comes from plum. Uh, and it's, it's not that the prune is a dried plum. A prune is a plum that is dried or is capable of drying without fermentation. So, evidently, there are some plums that if you try to dry them, they make what? (laughs) Slavica. I
1: know all about fermented plums.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Ask a Slovak. So, we have um, that's what a prune is. It's not just that it's a plum, it is a plum that is dried or is capable of being dried without fermenting. That is why prune is different from plum. Raisin is amazing. So the word raisin, also Middle English, comes ultimately through um, Anglo-French from Latin. Res, I'm gonna, sorry, I just default to classical Latin pronunciations. I'm gonna not do classical Latin pronunciation here. Racimus. It would be racemos if it were classical Latin, um, which means a cluster of grapes or berries. It does not refer to the individual grape. It refers to a cluster of grapes. Why this got used for the uh, dried grapes is anyone's guess, but I'm guessing that it's probably because the way that they were dried was they were left on the vine and the whole cluster was cut and laid in the sun to dry. And then as they dried, they just fell off of the the stems.
1: You know, if we did what everyone thinks that we do as lexicographers, we could come up now and just invent a bunch of names for, you know, dried apricots, dried cherries, that kind right. of thing. Right.
0: Yeah. But that's not what we do. That isn't what we do. Although,
1: you know what a you know what a dried onion is? Oh, what's that? A funion. A funion. <laughs>
0: I think those are dried and fried.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure there's any actual onion in it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's a muncho? Onions. Oh, Uh I mean,
1: it's potato based, but
0: yeah, right. I mean, yeah, or starch based of some kind.
1: A random starch. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Rando starch. Anyway, so and the, here's the other thing: we don't. It, it's entirely possible that. There were Middle English names for dried cherries, probably not dried pineapples. I don't know that we had pineapples in the uh, 1300s. Maybe we did. Hey, medieval cookery people, hit me up and tell me I'm wrong. But those things just didn't carry over into modern English. The reason that you have uh, both plum, prune, or all three, plum, prune, and raisin carrying over is because they were actually really common uh, Fancy ingredients for stuffings and stuff in medieval cookery. If you want to know about medieval cookery, there are actually reprints of 14th and 15th century cookbooks that you can find on the Internet where you can learn to do things like um, make sparrows or you can learn how to. Yeah, Steve. Did just you say came... make,
1: make sparrows?
0: Yeah, like to make and like the bake bird sparrows. Yeah, the bird. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: That was yeah. what you said then. Yeah,
0: that is what I said. Although
1: I thought you meant synthesized sparrows. Like, oh, but like, that would like be like Frankenstein. Yeah, I
0: think those are alchemy books, not yes. cookbooks.
1: But yeah, that comes you right. Is there at... that much of a difference between alchemy and cookbooks in the 14th century?
0: Oh. Uh i think just the ingredients alchemy just used a lot of lead and uh mm, dangerous lead. heavy metals yeah and cookery just did that by accident
1: mercury the sweetest of all transition <laughs> elements i i am just gonna make adult swim references all day
0: <laughs> uh, well, and that's really all you need to know about raisins and prunes and mercury so so thank you Ari Melber and the person who pinged us, who I think was um, Anne Scrutatrix. I believe she on Twitter pinged us. So there's one. I actually have sheets of paper I'm working with because we're old school. Uh, oh, Steve, this is one for you. Uh, Tim Stewart writes, what's the cool room with the books shown in the banner graphic on your Podbean page?
1: Hey, great question. Um, that is a screenshot from our Corey's appearance. I'm going to say Corey and my's appearance from the appearance that Corey and I did when we were on. The uh, time
0: what Steve and I did the thing.
1: Yes. Uh, from when we were on Samantha B's Full Frontal uh, mm. earlier this year. Uh, that was the, it was a private reading room that it was shot in. And uh, it's a it was an amazing room. And it, it was actually an amazing uh, film shoot. Lots of fun. We went up to New York for one day. Ah, uh, for that segment, we'll link it. The actual segment that aired on Full Frontal was very short, but then they uh, released a web extra that goes into some uh, depth where we talk, where we, where, where we, in, where they ask us to invent a word, and we did, and it's a lot of fun. It
0: is a lot of fun. Um, I seem to remember that room had. We walked into that room and I, I think one of the first things I said to you was there are swords on the wall. Yep. Yeah.
1: Swords and books. And they asked us to bring in a bunch of our own dictionaries too that we used yeah, to- Yeah,
0: Steve brought in a bunch of his dictionaries. We, so. we, schlepped,
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, we schlepped to New York with these like bags of books. I think they, I had like books bags and bag yep. bags. and yep. uh, the uh, it, it was a full on film, sh- film shoot. Uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: It was a lot of fun. But yeah, that is not, that's not either of our houses, nor <laughs> is it, <laughs> don't I wish, nor is it um, Merriam-Webster's headquarters, which are disappointingly beige and not all that decorated, nor is it mer- or, uh Houghton mer- Mifflin,
1: yeah, yeah, which is all windows and bright light.
0: Oh, that sounds better yes. than beige.
1: Well, it's Boston, so it's as bright oh, as the light is outside right. on any given day. So it's
0: all windows and gray. Windows and gray. Yeah.
1: Um, what would you do, Corey, if you had your own reading room?
0: Oh my gosh. What would what? I do? I mean, I would do a lot of reading. I would end up buying a whole lot more books that would probably lead to divorce for me. My poor husband. Uh you know what I would do? I would <laughs> I would buy decorative swords and hang them on the wall.
1: Nice. Uh a reading room, I, I I think I envy, I covet. Uh if you've ever been in uh where Jesse Scheidler lives, his his main room is just wall to wall bookshelves with wall to wall books. Um, they're actually arranged in in in, in, a, in, a, in a by topic that you can kind of follow, as opposed to my books that oh. are all a jumble. Really? Yeah.
0: We I've tried to organize my books. So my work books are my work books. The books that I use for work are arranged uh, mostly by type, topic, and then author because I have so many. But then the rest of my books are kind of like, eh, that wall is, I think, fiction, that wall, though I I do, uh, I do have uh, a Beowulf shelf in my, in my,
1: <laughs> have you ever arranged books by spine color?
0: No. I have. Have you? My
1: paperbacks, yeah.
0: Oh, see, no, because if I start going that route, then I'm going to have to arrange them also by size so that everything is done properly. And I know. My
1: friend Kara arranges all of her apps on her phone by color. So really? she's got all the red apps in one thing and all the green apps. And oh, all, wow. And it is because like, it's like, I need the calculator. Where's that orange thing? Right. A,
0: there you go. That would do it. Yeah. So that was a fun, that was a really fun reading room. Um, I, You know, I kind of feel like my my house already is a reading room because I have so many damn books everywhere.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that was a screenshot from uh, the time we were on Full Frontal.
0: Yeah. Whoopee. All right. Let's see. Moving on. Uh, oh, we've had a bunch of people ask us this. What are your takes on crowdsourced lexicography? For those who don't know what that is, that would be like Wiktionary, Urban Dictionary, Open Dictionaries, that kind of thing.
1: I think they are they can be an incredible um resource. I mean like any other thing on the internet, you have to n- know what you're reading and, mm-hmm. and but there, there there's a lot of crowdsourced dictionaries that are supremely important because this is a way a lot of indigenous languages that are on the verge of uh, being uh, becoming extinct mm-hmm. are it, it it's, it's a great way of keeping these languages alive. Yeah. Uh, linguists are working with indigenous populations to preserve languages, mm-hmm. foster languages Everyone knows how they talk. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a speaks the variety of the language that they speak. And all of these varieties are very important. And I can think of no better way than to make a record of all these variations, all these possibilities by opening up these types of resources so that people can adequately record uh, the language that is re-spo- that is spoken around them. So it, it's a very important resource. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of people assume that because we're professional lexicographers, we hate uh, open source or crowdsourced dictionaries, which is so interesting to me because, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you could say, well, if anyone can write a dictionary, then we don't need professional lexicographers to respond to that. Um, we Merriam-Webster had for a long time an open dictionary which was basically a crowdsourced dictionary. And the one thing that we learned doing that is that people don't actually know how to write dictionary definitions because it's such abstruse weird information to have. So people would submit a word that was clearly a noun, they would say its part of speech was an adjective. They would give it a definition that was kind of not any part of speech definition or sometimes didn't even tell you what it meant. And then they would give you an example sentence that used it as a verb. So... And to be not-
1: useful, it, it, yeah. it needs to be curated in some way. Uh, and, you know, you know a site like UrbanDictionary.com, there is useful information there. There's also a lot of noise because yeah. people go on there to rag on their friends. If you look up any given name, uh, this is part of a TED Talk I once gave. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look up any given name, you will find all these insulting things because <laughs> people are going there to insult their friends, right. right? Right. So you you need to approach it with an eye of how am I going to use this information? And, mm-hmm. you know, if... if if it annoys you, don't go to that website.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, when people say, you know, uh, well, Urban Dictionary isn't, a, it's not a good scholarly resource. You know, first, the idea that everything you read on the internet should be a scholarly resource, while in theory is fabulous, is not actually ever true. But the other thing is that, you know, there are times when if I am looking up or I am researching a pretty recent slang term, my first written use will be an urban dictionary definition. And not only that, I mean,
1: if you're looking at old clay records of Turcarian beer, whatever, those aren't really scholarly <laughs> resources either. They're manifests of yeah. stuff that's being, you know, schlepped across yeah. Central Asia. Yeah. I mean, all of these old records that we have of long dead languages, you know, shopping lists, uh, itemizations. Letters it,
0: of complaint. Le- Lots of letters of complaint yeah. in Akkadian. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it, it, it it's similar to that. It's not like everything was written down by, you know, Plato on a gold platter. and <laughs>
0: <laughs> Though if Plato could have had it his way, he totally would have written things down on a gold platter and then that would have been it. Um, the other thing I think when, you know, getting back to the point of indigenous languages and, and uh, recording languages that are endangered or have been previously unrecorded, um, you know, when that happens, that's usually a lexicographer or an ethnolinguist with training in how to help document a language going to the people who speak it. And I think honestly that that's a really helpful way of looking at any kind of crowdsource dictionary.
1: And also uh, in, in terms of this curation, uh, one nice thing that's happening, you know, in the past you would get, uh, you know, an ethnolinguist or a lexicographer going to uh, different peoples and working with them to record the language and now uh, especially in places like Canada um they they the 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 universities the departments are encouraging people from within the communities mm-hmm. uh to do this uh, so that the train so that with the training that this 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 body of work is coming from within the community as opposed to yes. being imposed by people from the outside and we're seeing more and more Lexicographical work done by people who speak the language natively, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a huge quality. uh, There's a huge quality difference because people who know the language are doing the work rather than someone who has to come in and go through translation processes and that kind of thing. And
0: even if you, even if you come in as an outsider and you think you are uh, dumping all your bias at the door, you're not. I mean, this is actually a huge issue with any kind of 19th century. Uh, scholarly, quote-unquote scholarly dictionary of the North American indigenous languages. They were done primarily, well, they were done entirely by uh, white settlers, white colonists who did not necessarily know the culture. And so within various- Not
1: necessarily, (laughs) meaning probably not at all. Probably
0: not at all. (laughs) um, Or missionaries who have come in. And so they clearly have their own filter when they're interacting with um, an indigenous population. And there's actually conversations within different Native communities, within different nations and tribes about how, you know, these white colonists did not necessarily get the connotative terms right. Getting Indigenous groups themselves as Native speakers to really press out the connotations of words in these crowdsourced dictionaries is, whether they're scholars or not, is actually a much more accurate uh, record of the language as it exists. So, so that's anyway, our take. that's our take on crowdsourcing. All right, let's go back to the questions. Uh, do you collect dictionaries? Steve, do you collect dictionaries? Well, of
1: course. <laughs> Why wouldn't we?
0: <laughs> we get it. <laughs> I end up collecting dictionaries by default because you end up getting a new new copy every time there's a new printing. I think I've got like, it's. I'm not joking. I probably have 24 copies of the Collegiate Dictionary sitting downstairs. We don't just say, "Oh, this is a cool little dictionary," but we get sort of into the weeds of, "Oh, this is." So, for instance, I collect uh, usage dictionaries too, and I'm like, "Oh, this is a Gower version of Fowler's Modern English Usage." I already have the Gower. This is a Birchfield. Oh, I've. I, I think I've already got that. Oh, is this an original Fowler? Fowler, then I'll take that. Oh, this is, you know, yeah, we we focus on things. In fact, I think Steve and I have had conversations where he'll say, oh, do you have the fourth printing of HD4? And I'll be like, no, no, I only have the second. Sorry. like <laughs> or I only have the no, sorry, I only have AHD 3 third printing, and that AHD. being in my
1: actual house. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I have access to these printings <laughs> yeah. back at the office, but uh, right. in my in my actual house, I don't have every single printing. Yeah. But- between Corey and me and among all of our friends, uh, you could stock a fairly large size referenced library.
0: Yeah, easily. I will say I do
1: slang dictionaries. Oh man. So many slang dictionaries. So many.
0: Yeah. And you gotta keep buying them because it yeah. just changes. I will say I do collect um I have a soft spot for weird bilingual dictionaries. So, um, and that really started when I started studying all the dead languages in college, because then I was like, oh now I have now I have an Old English to Modern English glossary. Now I have a, so I, I've got a bunch of, um, obviously I've got some Finnish English dictionaries because that's what I speak, but I've got Icelandic English. I have um, a, uh, I've got a Norwegian English dictionary. I have a copy of Webster's Third that was printed in three volumes. A friend gave this to me and it has a seven language dictionary in the back with, um, English, Italian, Spanish, French, Swedish, Yiddish, and uh, German.
1: I have a much simpler way of uh, that that multilingual thing. I, for example, if you buy a Kinder Egg in Eastern <laughs> Europe. It comes, I I had one who had instructions. I think it was like Danger, Don't Swallow the Toy Inside. Right, right, right. In like 17 different languages of the former Soviet Republic. Everything from Tajik to Georgian to to Estonian. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) And I'm like doing all these correspondences and it was fantastic. And it's just like this little slip of paper. Or when I was in Europe a couple weeks ago, I Mm -hmm. was in my friend's... uh, Uh, Bathroom, and I was like taking photos and posting them on Twitter of the back of shampoo bottles, you know, that are in Czech and Slovak or. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. One of the few pieces of art I own is a hand printed, hand stitched Webster's Pictorial Dictionary that uh, uh, an artist uh, named Johnny Carrera. Uh, put together at Quercus Press. He took all the woodcuts mm-hmm. from the Merriam-Webster dictionaries that were um, stored at, at Yale in the archives. And it's a dictionary of just these woodcuts that he's arranged artistically on the page by topic. Uh, he, I, I visited, back when he was in, in Massachusetts, I visited his loft, which was mm-hmm. a giant printing press. Earlier oh, when man, I told I you bet. about uppercases and lowercases, yeah, yeah. that's where I saw it. He... He made, uh, I think, 100 copies by hand, cranking them up by hand, right. and then he and other people like sewed them into the binding. Oh, I mean, amazing. it's a work it's a work of art. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Oh, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I've, I have a, a non-work-of-art copy of the Pictorial, uh, Webster's Pictorial Dictionary, I think is what it's called. We will link to it on Twitter so mm-hmm. you too can see what we're nerding out about. My favorite thing about the bilingual dictionaries that I end up collecting is is the decisions that are made about what kinds of vocabulary to enter and what kinds of phrases in particular to enter. So this copy of the third that my friend gave me, I, I adore it because if you go to the back, the seven language dictionary, this was, and this was printed in, uh, let me think sixty four, sixty seven, something like that. So that tells you something about why those seven languages were chosen. Um, but the best part is there's also a phrase book for each one of these. So if you want to learn how to say, um, I would like a haircut with hair oil in Swedish, you can do that. But my favorite one is that it gives you standard greetings for holidays. So there is a translation for Merry Christmas in Yiddish. I think it, it's, the translation is, you know, a bright night. Nacht. I think that's what it is.
1: In episode six, we talked about my 1960s Czech textbook, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> similar to that. And it's like, you need to know about tractor collectives and central heating. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. yeah. It's very important. Those so yeah, we, co- important. we collect a lot of books. Yes.
1: Well, I, I, to be honest, it's not just reference works. It's... Yeah. And, and I've downsized so much. My move from Boston to Philadelphia, I downsized books tremendously, and I still have a ton of books, but it's mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 a large... I, I have my, you know, my Shirley Jackson section, my William Gibson <laughs> section, uh plays. I mean, but reference is its own bookcase.
0: That's all very important, I think. Mm-hmm. Especially the the uh, Shirley Jackson one. Uh so we also got a question on Twitter. Someone wants to know more about P forty five. That's all you. That's all me. Uh for those who do not remember P forty five, uh it appeared in the pronunciation episode, which I think was episode four. I'm not sure but you can go back and look at the archive and you can figure it out all by your lonesome Uh, and I note that P45 is one of the only long words I can say correctly. Pneumanoiltor microscopic volcano coniosis and then I noted it was kind of a made up word which made a lot of people say what are you talking about? How could that possibly be a made up word? I mean all words are made up words. We don't find them on the ocean floor fully formed. But this word in particular was coined sort of facetiously and in short order made it into uh, Webster's Second New International Dictionary. So someone wanted to know what that was. So this word uh, was coined by Everett Smith, who was the president of the National Puzzlers League back in 1935, I believe it was. And uh, he was basically, uh, he introduced it at a meeting of the National Puzzlers League, supposedly to show medical terms in particular are ridiculously long. So it was really, it was not quite a hoax. It was more a jape or a jest way of <laughs> of, of coining a word. So it made it, he, he coined it. It ended up showing up then in an issue of the New York Herald Tribune, and then it was included in a book by Frank Scully called Bedside Manna, the Bedside Manna, M-A-N-N-A. I'm not making fun of New Yorkers. The third fun in bed book, which my guess is probably not at all about the kind of fun in bed that you're thinking of. And um, at that point, it started appearing in print. No, it. It was included in a supplement to the second New International in 1939. Um, some people have claimed that it was added at the behest of the National Puzzlers League because of a campaign. I can't speak to that because maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it did take off a little bit in print, and that was enough for Merriam-Webster. So now mono ultramicroscopic silicovolcano coniosis is immortalized in the dictionary. Coined
1: words are always fun.
0: They are. They're super fun.
1: Chambrain, it's shampoo for your hair <laughs> and your brain.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: Space Ghost, is there anything you can't teach us?
0: And I think on that note, it's always better to leave things with Space Ghost. So, ah. uh, housekeeping, rating, you know all about that. Uh, Twitter, Fiat Lex Podcast. Uh, send us your emails, Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, hit us up. Say hi. Uh, give us our personal space. But say hi. Be nice. Be nice. And we will see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.